Too many things in our lives require too much effort. But when it comes to disinfecting surfaces with the new Clorox disinfecting mist, you just spray and walk away. No wiping required. The aerosol-free Clorox disinfecting mist kills 99.9% of germs on hundreds of surfaces with an easy-to-use continuous sprayer. And it comes in two delightful scents with a reusable sprayer and refills that help keep plastic out of landfills. Try the new Clorox disinfecting mist today. Use as directed. Rinse required on incidental food contact surfaces. Those big wireless companies try to lure you in with a new phone just to lock you into a contract. Not Simple Mobile. If you have a great smartphone you love, you can get a powerful nationwide 5G network without the contract. Just text the word BYOP to 611611 to see if your phone's compatible. Simple Mobile. Out with the old, in with the simple. Message and data rates may apply. Visit simplemobile.com slash privacy policy for privacy policy and the terms and conditions at simplemobile.com slash terms and conditions. Compatible 5G capable device and SIM required. Actual availability coverage and speed may vary. 5G network not available in all areas. 5G upload speeds not yet available. One of the things I'm always very happy about with this podcast is just the vast array of topics and people that are on the show. And today is no different. We have a second time guest, Dr. Anuj Shah. And Dr. Shah was on a while ago talking about spirituality and medicine. And this time we tackle a different subject, uh, which is... um, amputation and peripheral artery disease, and also the racial disparities related to those things. Very fascinating information. Uh, I think you'll learn quite a bit, and you'll see that I definitely learned quite a bit. So sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation I had with Dr. Anuj Shah. It's very good to talk to you again, Dr. Shah. How are you? I'm doing well, Darian. Thank you so much. Uh, glad to be here back. Thanks for having me. Lots changed since we talked. That was a while ago. Yeah, I think that was like literally in the middle of COVID crisis, right? It's uh, Or it was yeah. before even. like when it, it was, was before. It was even before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a whole pandemic has happened since then. <laughs> man, we were talking about spirituality and medicine, and I was like, man, this is awesome. And then boom, we got hit, man. Yeah, Yeah, right. We needed those mental muscles uh, to get through pandemics more than ever. Most definitely. Well, I know today we're going to be chatting a little bit about uh, peripheral artery disease and uh, limb amputation in the black community. I want to learn more about how you got into this, your interest in in putting this out there. Absolutely. So peripheral vascular disease is when people have blocked arteries um, as well as vein problems in the leg. So basically any circulation problem. Um, I got interested, you know, during my training days, uh, you know, when we used to round, uh, I, I, I trained in India back in the day. And I remember the treatment, if you, you, if you have a serious circulation problem, the treatment was just amputate. And that mm. was as brutal as it sounds, that used to be the, uh, the, uh, the cornerstone of therapy. And of course, that didn't trigger any interest in me. Little did I know that there were so many different ways to prevent, protect limbs, and in turn, protecting lives. So when I further trained in the U.S. Um, and started going through my interventional cardiology and my, my cardiology training, um, I, I figured out that cardio, cardiology is not just cardiology. It is cardiovascular. And, mm. and your vascular part of it is the 90% of the blood vessels in the body, and cardiac is less than 10%. And, uh, and the, the two go hand in hand. People who have cardiac issues are oftentimes at risk of developing peripheral vascular disease. 
and people who have peripheral vascular disease are oftentimes at risk of getting cardiac problem. And not only that, once people get peripheral vascular disease, if you don't intervene and, and fix it and save limbs, their future longevity and, and livelihood really goes down. So once I realized that there are ways to save limbs, prevent amputation, um, and by doing it, you're actually protecting and preventing lives, it really sparked my interest. And, and this is one of the fields of medicine, which is truly growing. And we are learning more and more. There is all kind of new trials and data and research coming out. We have all kind of different tools and technology that's coming out. Um, and it's, it's nowadays, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot easier than what it used to be to go and open those blockages and saving those limbs. So that's what really uh, got me interested. Well, tell me a little bit about the symptomology related to it. Uh, if, if I think about this, is this related to diabetes as well with that? Absolutely. So diabetes is the number one reason for peripheral vascular disease. Um, there's a very famous trial called Framingham study, which is a study done mm. back in, uh, you know, it's one of those, uh, what we call the cohort study. So, you know, people in Framingham, Massachusetts were followed for decades and decades. And, and what they, they discovered is if somebody has diabetes, your risk of getting peripheral vascular disease is uh, fourfold, which is 400% higher than uh, your non-diabetic population. You know, And this is, again, a very white suburban community in Framingham, Massachusetts. You know, When we add racial disparities and when we add other risk factors like hypertension and smoking, you know, the, the risk actually goes a lot more. You know, so as we say in medicine, two times two is not four, two times two is 22. Diabetes and smoking is a perfect example uh, of that. You know, if your risk of, you know, amputation and peripheral vascular disease, if you're diabetic is two times more, same thing with, uh, with smoking. But when you have a combination, the risk doesn't go four times, it goes exponentially higher. What's the genesis of all this? I mean, you know, I'm hearing this, where do you think kind of the start is it nutrition? Is it uh, socioeconomic levels? What's the kind of the the base, the root of all this? The root cause of peripheral vascular disease? Um, yeah. Yeah. So the root cause is, I think it's a combination, right? Just like coronary artery disease, which is blockage in the heart arteries, mm-hmm. similar risk factors play a role. So hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, bad genetics, you know, poor family history, uh, uh. poor dietary habits, not paying attention. You know, oftentimes there is that drive to get early detection and screening is not there. You know, it's not there for the patient and the family. And oftentimes even the primary caregivers can uh, and providers can miss uh, diagnosing peripheral vascular disease. Why, well. why is that? Why is there a lack of early detection? Um, I think some of it is is the medical community hasn't really done a great job, in my opinion, in raising awareness. You know, we always say that uh, when it's October, everyone's wearing pink, you know, from NFL players. Right, to, right. You know, like you see, you know, breast cancer awareness everywhere because I think the breast cancer community has done a great job in raising awareness. Um, most people get surprised when they find out that amputation, if, if somebody gets a major limb amputation, their, their risk is higher than stage four breast cancer. Their risk is higher than most of the, of the metastatic huh. cancers. I mean, that's the average lifespan you know, after a major amputation is, uh, is, is less than two years, you know, 50% will not after two years. Yes. So major amputation is as bad as having stage four cancers, but unfortunately the, and, and it's preventable just like, uh, you know, some of the cancers are preventable same way, 
major amputation oftentimes is preventable. And again, there is there is a significant lack of awareness in, in patients and community, but also in healthcare providers, which is surprisingly shocking. Also, the technology has improved, medicine and science has improved. Um, so there are many, many ways to prevent, detect, and, uh, and fix when people have circulation problem, but it's it's not that well known, you know, in, in some, some of the primary care and podiatrists oftentimes are not aware of what options exist for them uh, in terms of vascular specialty. So I what is it COVID, about after anything, two years? COVID has brought a lot of attention to this. I'm sorry. I was saying COVID has brought a lot of attention because COVID, COVID yeah, is causing yeah. a lot of, uh, you know, circulation problems. You know, we are seeing a lot of people with blood clots. And, and what we found out is at the end of the day, COVID is a vascular phenomenon. You know, what COVID caused a lot of damage to people's lungs, legs, yeah. all kind of organs because of vascular inflammation. So uh, now people are getting a little bit more aware. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I want to get back to that for sure. But what is it about the, t- you said the two years after. So somebody gets an amputation. What is it about that time frame that after they get it that makes the potential for death so... Uh, high for that. Yeah. So what happens is, uh, you know, major amputation, first of all, is not, uh, you know, when we're talking major, it means like amputation at the level of the knee or level of the hip, or or the other words are below knee amputation or above knee amputation, what medically we refer BK and AK. So these amputation themselves are, first of all, they're they're very complex surgeries. Uh, There is five to 10% mortality during the hospital stay, which means in hospital. So when somebody goes for baloney amputation, there is one in 10 chance they may not even come out of the hospital. Uh, one in 20 chance for baloney. And when it's above knee, it's one in 10 chance that they may not actually mm. make it out of the hospital because the surgeries, you know, require a lot of anesthesia, a lot of, you know, potential uh, uh, trauma and stress to the heart uh, during the surgery. And then oftentimes these are the very folks who have heart problem to begin with. So that's why, um, you know, the, the, the surgery itself is a risk. Once, let's say somebody had this surgery and then they survived the amputation itself, what happens is their functional capacity really goes down. So now people cannot function in the community the same exact way um, they would have otherwise, uh, which, you know, and again, you know, they should be doing aggressive uh, occupational therapy and rehabilitation, but more often than not, people lose their ability to walk that much, even with prosthesis. And when, once you have a prosthesis, you're putting way too much pressure on your other limb. So these people will end mm. up getting pressure ulcers on now your contralateral limb, the limb that did not get amputation. Yes. What that leads to is they have similar vascular problem in that leg. And so you're, once you get amputation in one leg, your risk of getting amputation in the other leg significantly goes up. Uh, now, people, once they get this problem, they are not, you know, oftentimes they end up requiring having to stay in the nursing homes and in, in uh, some kind of assisted living facilities. And they end up getting decubitus ulcer, which is like an ulcer in the, in the back because they are putting too much pressure and they get frequent infections. They go to the hospital, they catch more hospital acquired infection and they enter this vicious circle where, you know, amputation leads to more amputation, which leads to more ulcer formation, which leads to infection, which leads to, um, you know, hospital-acquired infection. They end up getting uh, heart failure. They end up getting GI bleeding. So so that's that's what happens. There's a downward spiral that gets started with the index event, which oftentimes is the first amputation. 
Man, I had no clue there was this weird cycle that happened with that. I think myself, like a lot of people, you think somebody gets an amputation, maybe they get a prosthesis and life is, you know, different, but maybe okay. I didn't know it was all that. Yeah. And it, you know, again, most people don't realize that, but, um, you know, it is, uh, it is truly the, the biggest detriment. We say that uh, once you, you know, once you have certain kind of amputation, as I said, you, you know, up to 40 to 50% people will not live beyond two years. When you follow them up to five years, 60 to 70% of them uh, are not alive at five years. So that's how does that I, compare to your work in cardiology? With people, let's say they have a heart surgery, heart transplant. What is the um, survival rate re- related to, to that comparison? And, and major peripheral vascular disease, the prognosis is worse than having a heart attack or worse than having a stroke. Wow. Um, and again, oftentimes there is, an, in, there is a tremendous overlap, right? People who have coronary artery disease and heart attack are oftentimes the same people who are having peripheral vascular disease and who are having, uh. having stroke. So there's a lot of overlap. Uh, but again, you know, there is a, there is a Bristol Myers Squibb did a registry and they looked at people, they divided into three categories, those who had an obvious heart attack, those who had, had an obvious stroke, and those who had obvious peripheral vascular disease or peripheral arterial disease. And when you, they followed the three groups, the peripheral vascular disease group did actually worse than the other two groups. Wow. This is a serious uh, issue. Obviously it's not getting a lot of attention, but you mentioned about COVID. Tell me about your experience with that and related to peripheral vascular disease. Yeah, so interestingly, COVID is is obviously it's a viral infection which causes inflammation, and and what we we are seeing more and more is it's causing vascular inflammation. So oftentimes, the sickest of the patients who had COVID were admitted in the hospital in the ICU. What we saw is they had tremendous clot burden. Their blood vessels became very unhealthy, um, causing inflammation, what we call vascular inflammation or endothelial dysfunction, which ended up causing blood clots. Some of them had microclots uh, in the lungs and that caused the hypoxia and they were lack of oxygen requiring intubation. And eventually some of them, you know, obviously did not make through this, uh, unfortunately. Um, but it also caused, you know, these clots in the lower extremities, in the limbs, in, uh, you know, some people had it in, in the brain causing strokes and intracranial bleeding. Some people had it in the heart and caused heart attack. Um, and oftentimes people got blood clots in the leg veins, blood clots in the leg arteries. So we saw during COVID crisis, especially in, the, in those peak months in uh, New York and New Jersey in, um, in March, April, and May, we saw a lot of people with COVID who had cold limb. Like suddenly they were fine and then they got significant issue with their circulation. And, uh, you know, we did everything in our capacity to save their limbs, but uh, when COVID really became the trigger, so it really unmasked the underlying issues on on some of these people. Mm -hmm. Wow. And now I'm sure there was a, well, maybe there was, it seems like there was a large racial disparity related to this. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so unfortunately, just like everything in healthcare, there is a huge racial disparity. If there have, if you, if you, you know, people of color, um, African Americans, Hispanics, Asian Americans, um, especially the subcontinental Asian, they all, all happen to have much higher risk of, um, you know, all the underlying risk factors: hypertension, diabetes, uh, and all those things. But more importantly, in peripheral vascular disease arena, we are seeing. Uh, we're seeing a really big uh, racial disparity, you know, especially 
when we talk about african american population compared to caucasian population um mm-hmm. the amputation rates are significantly higher i mean they are saying that um the amputation rates are almost you know in certain studies they are like you know like 10 times higher in african american population compared to uh compared to uh, you know the non uh, non african american population so it's it's a big problem and you know some of this is um access to healthcare you know often times there is uh, there is a little bit less access to healthcare uh, often times there is genetic predisposition uh which makes them more prone to uh, hypertension and especially dialysis you know african american population tend to have much higher um frequency of end stage renal disease and dialysis which by itself is a huge risk factor for peripheral vascular disease and amputation um often times it is access to medication they don't get the same type of medication often times insurance doesn't pay for them um and, and you know certain medication so that becomes a problem but the most frustrating reason that i find out is often times their symptoms are not taken seriously if you are african american and you walk in uh, to either a doc you know either an emergency room doctor's office anywhere there is a statistical difference in the likelihood of your chance of being taken more seriously so why is that not sure i think some of this is perception some of this is um, it could be because sometimes there is this perception that oh there is a pain seeking uh, uh you know pattern um that people perceive and uh, and wrongfully i would say and often time diseases get missed um even a lot of our textbooks are written based on uh, you know people and all the research is done in in caucasian so first of all the research studies are not enough so we don't know enough about vascular disease and peripheral arterial disease and amputation in uh you know people of color because there is not enough data and research available so if someone happens to be you know caucasian and they have a light skin color and they have skin discoloration of their lower extremity it's obvious it's 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 a little bit more obvious and in likelihood is it will be taken more seriously by healthcare provider and we just don't uh, tend to see that uh when when somebody is um, is a person of color so we are seeing more and more and i think part of it is just awareness you know so we do need to raise Uh, awareness for this this racial disparity amongst many many other that all already exist in uh, in healthcare yeah it's this seems like a big kind of wormhole to go down with it and uh understanding that i mean so you're saying you've seen a lot more amputation during this particular time frame and it's illuminated the issue Yes, absolutely. What is also happening is people are living a little bit longer uh when they're surviving their heart attack and and stroke, right? Mm. So on one side what's going on is you know back in the days I would say like even 20 years ago if somebody has you know diabetes and stage renal disease and and they're on dialysis or if they have other underlying risk factors they their likelihood of surviving was a lot less. to the credit of medical community especially i think people in cardiology you know there's a lot of incredible treatment options exist when someone has coronary artery disease when they have a bowel problem and they have serious heart problem that we are making these people live a lot longer hmm. so yes you know now people who would have otherwise not you know the average let's say let's say the average lifespan was around 60 years 60 to 65 for somebody with multiple risk factor now they are living 10 15 20 years more 
what ends up happening is later on in their lives, now we are seeing peripheral vascular disease and all these other problems. So that's why we are seeing a tsunami of uh, peripheral vascular disease problem. I mean, historically speaking, you know, every 10 years, the incidence of peripheral vascular disease is growing. And it used to be like 4 million, uh, 4 to 5 million in 2000. Now it's around 20 million people who have some form of peripheral vascular disease. So it has grown five times in the last 10 years. How do you stem the tide of that? I mean, it seems like it's just overwhelming. How does that, how do you get those numbers back down? I think it's down? because people are, who would have otherwise died are not dying from, you know, cardiac reason. They're not dying from cancer. So people, you know, so, because at the end of the day, peripheral vascular disease is also a disease of an old age. So once people mm. live a little bit longer, we are seeing more peripheral vascular disease. Uh, people also, you know, and also our lifestyles are not improving. Despite all yes. this, we, you know, people are not taking care of their bodies the way they should. You know, there is actually poor dietary habit, poor exercise habits than what it used to exist. Smoking has gone down, but vaping has gone up. So everything is balanced right. out. How do you as a physician have those conversations and you say, well, this could be somewhat preventable. What are those conversations like? So I educate the patients. I always tell them that legs are the windows to the heart. If you mm. happen to have poor circulation, chances are you have poor heart, chances are you have poor prognosis. So I always tell people that don't, first of all, if you have any symptoms, which is leg pain, cramps, achiness, um, oftentimes, you know, discoloration, uh, restless leg syndrome, and more importantly, if you have any open sores or ulcers, which has not been healing, if you have a wound on the lower extremity that's not healing, these are all symptoms. If you see any of that, do not ignore it. You know, seek immediate attention. Talk to your doctor. Stop. Find a vascular specialist. Get your basic vascular testing, especially if you have risk factors. If somebody has diabetes and somebody is a smoker, I don't need to question if they have peripheral vascular disease. I already know they have it. Um, it just then it's a matter of where and what degree and what level of peripheral vascular disease. Same way, if um, if you have risk factors like you know the ones that I mentioned you know, get routine testing. There is a there is a test called ABI, which is like a blood pressure. Most people get blood pressure of the arms, but we can also check blood pressure of the legs. It takes really? 15 minutes huh. to check blood pressure of the legs and it tells us immediately, you know, a, a large, you know, a, a large majority of the people you can detect peripheral vascular disease by doing a simple blood pressure of the lower extremity. Is that the same kind of, um, is it systolic, diastolic? You're looking at similar numbers as you would in your arms, or is that a different What we criteria? do is we compare the blood pressure in the arm with blood pressure in the legs. And the concept is very simple. The leg blood pressure should never be, you know, significantly lower than the blood pressure in the arms. And, you know, obviously there are multiple ways of doing it. Uh, you know, someone like me who's a vascular specialist, we check blood pressure at three or four different levels in the lower extremity in both legs and we compare. But in all honesty, just the ankle blood pressure itself, uh, if we check and compare that with the arm blood pressure, which takes, as I said, literally 15-minute blood pressure test, that can tell us all the information we need to. And it's really only the top number that we usually focus on this. Yeah. So the diastolic pressure can be very off in the lower extremity, but systolic pressure, uh, the ratio between arm and leg is it what truly determines. Wow. Now, are you seeing this in young people? Uh, at all, or is it just primarily uh, with elderly folks? We are seeing more and more young people uh, with peripheral vascular disease. 
of course at the end of the day elderly are way more likely but you know we used to see people in their 60s now we are seeing 50s and 40s um, you know getting uh, peripheral vascular disease uh, you know as well what i see way, way more common in the younger people is peripheral venous disease which is you know which is a type of vascular problem it's a cousin of your peripheral arterial disease venous problems are uh, you know, they don't necessarily lead to amputation, but they lead to a lot of symptoms. People get pain, cramps, huge limb swelling. They get ulcers, which are very painful, uh, infections, uh, you know, varicose veins, restless leg. They can get uh, unusual itching. So this is a type of uh, vascular problem. And, and we are definitely seeing a lot of that in uh, in younger people. Is that also lifestyle related or what's kind of the it multi is, it is lifestyle related uh people who have to you know people who tend to have people who have jobs require them to stand on their feet for a long time so we you know they often mm. get this venous disease women actually tend to get a lot more venous disease than than men but again another major misconception is that men don't get vein problems which is uh which is a complete misconception you know because uh you know how they say men are from Mars, women are from, from Venus? Yeah. So there is a joke in, in medical education that, oh, if it's a vein problem, it, it, men can have it. Completely untrue, you know. So men can very, very easily have varicose veins. They can have venous problems. And we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, people who have obesity, um, you know, they tend to have a lot of vein problems. Sleep apnea. Uh, diabetes, again, plays a big role. Hypertension. When we talk about hypertension, we all, we all only focus on arterial hypertension which is what we check right. in the arm but same way there is a, something called venous hypertension that most people don't think about it and that can lead to this uh, and obviously women get it more because you know especially those who have multiple pregnancies so certain communities where you know it's more common to have multiple kids we see a lot of vein problems are you you know i'm thinking about the access to healthcare, and then i'm thinking about our ever-increasing uh basic rate of obesity in the United States. And, and for that real reason, maybe around the world, how do we combat this with our healthcare system as it currently is, or what changes need to be made? Yeah. So I think obesity, in my opinion, is a meta problem, right? Obesity leads to everything because it's one of those, um, you know, very, very underlying root problem. And if you trace that back, it really goes down to uh, two or three things, you know, we always say that there is a large genetic component. Uh, and, you know, the, the famous dictum is that genes run in the family, so do recipes, right? So people <laughs> right, say right. that, uh, you know, like, oh, well, my, my, my parents used to be overweight and my grandparents used to be overweight, so hence I'm overweight. Sure. But they also probably made certain mistakes. You know, they, they had certain kind of diet, they didn't exercise and they kind of ignored it. Those are the things you can change. So I think at the end of the day, paying attention to diet, um, you know, a healthy lifestyle with exercise, it's very important. I mean, if again, once again, going back to COVID, if COVID taught us anything, people who were obese, they ended up doing much worse. People right. who had underlying risk factors, they ended up doing much worse. Um, so it, it is teaching us a lesson that very important to focus on the underlying uh, risk factor and, and healthier lifestyle. I mean, it's shocking that even right now, if somebody wants to be healthy and they want to have a salad um, for lunch, you know, it would cost them like $10, $15 to get, get yeah. salad versus a, like a, like a Mac burger, you know, is like 
hamburger is like like two bucks you know so i think the food industry is you know is playing a big role so i think it's a, it's a much larger conversation you know the government policy yeah uh, in terms of what we encourage in this country, you know, and uh, in access to, when we talk about access to healthcare and the and the disparities in access to healthcare, I think a large portion of that is also access to healthy food, and I think there is a disparity there as well. So I think uh, the, it all needs to change. Change has to be made. I think at the policy level, change has to be made made at the industry level. You know where the food industry has to own up to it. And I know a lot of food industries sort of changing and everybody's having healthy options. Yeah. And I think finally awareness, you know, families, patients, healthcare provider, these conversation has to become absolutely mainstream and it has to be brought to people's attention all the time. I think it should become like, for lack of better words, like stylish and sexy to eat healthy and be healthy. You know? <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and, you know, that, that should become the main, uh, you know, like mainstream conversation. How does doctor education come in play for this? I mean, is there, you know, with so much I hear, and I think we talked about it last time, I have several cardiology clients and just the lack of time that doctors have to speak with patients about these things. Is that still an issue or do you see that changing in the future? Uh, I do see it changing, but at a much slower pace than I would love to see. You know, I think there are, you know, certain healthcare providers, you know, certain primary cares who are very good, very savvy. Um, and, you know, again, paying paying a lot of attention to everything. But, but that's a small minority. I think large majority of the healthcare providers, including my cardiology colleagues, right? I mean, everybody's in hush-hush, rush-rush. Um, unfortunately, you know, especially like, you know, for peripheral vascular disease, you know, sometimes the disease is not very visible. That's the time to really detect it at the asymptomatic level, because then you can prevent it. And, uh, you know, so those screenings become important, but patients don't understand because they are pretty asymptomatic. They say, well, I'm fine. I don't have any problem. So why, why check? Um, and, you know, in the healthcare has become like a well-oiled machine where people are just coming, going in and out of the office. So, mm. so a lot of providers don't have time to examine feet. They don't have time to have this sophisticated conversation that why, why even without any symptoms, why, why despite you have no symptoms, we should check for your circulation. So, so that becomes a problem. And, you know, the same doctors are also talking about diabetes and hypertension and cholesterol and their cancer screening and their smoking cessation and all those things. So this becomes an added another large conversation. So it is somewhat challenging, but it's doable. I think one of the keys I always tell, you know, anytime I teach any residents or medical students, I always say that once you're seeing patients in the office, make sure you take your shoes and socks off and check their pulses and check their exam. Mm -hmm. Just a simple pulse exam in the office will, will help detect so much peripheral vascular disease. You will be shocked to hear how, you know, how many patients get their uh, feet checked, the shoes and socks are taken out? Less than 1%. Less That's than 1% uh, people in there during their routine, you know, office visits get their pulses checked. Even cardiology offices, you know, it's less than 5%. So it's really collectively as healthcare provider, we need to pay more attention to this issue. And I think just this is why dialogues like this and raising awareness is important, you know, at the patient level, community level, and at the provider level. Do you think what's happened with the virus and everything has changed, is, is or is changed, has changed or is going to change how doctors work and uh, the urgency with issues like this? 
Um, I hope it it gets in the right direction. What has happened is, you know, with with COVID, there are a few blessings, right? So one of them is telehealth, that people getting, uh, you know, telehealth mm-hmm. became almost mainstream, you know, telehealth or telemedicine right. has become mainstream. Uh, and, and telehealth is good. It, it serves a purpose to a degree, you know, certain things can be taken care of. But this is a prime example why telehealth can completely replace the the traditional model of medicine. And trust me, I love tele telehealth. I I think we could you know we could deliver a lot of healthcare even in the middle of pandemic and crisis. And even right now, we have a lot of people. We don't want them to come to the office to protect them. Um, you know, and a lot of the medicine can be done with with telehealth. But this is a prime example of how certain things are not replaceable. Like, you know, you cannot check people's pulses right now. Having said that, there are people working on different apps where you have a little sensor that you can put on somebody's shoes or, you know, or soles, I mean, uh, of the feet and, and check the uh, oxygen level in the feet. Now, these things have not become mainstream. If and when they become mainstream, they can truly replace, uh, you know, a large uh, component of what we do in the office. But right now, the the plain old bring the patient to the room and check their pulses you know that's actually is going away less and less so i hope uh, people pay more attention to these things do you think you know it's interesting that you brought that up do you think that there's an element to telehealth that people are sometimes frustrated going to the hospital and sitting and waiting for an appointment that may or may not be on time and at least they could be at home on for that element of it is that part of the reason that may be more popular i don't know i'm just throwing it out you know yeah no no i agree i think it, it definitely is very it's it's convenient right from a patient standpoint it's very convenient just like you know a lot of businesses are now being replaced by online why not medicine so and it certainly has value without a doubt i mean there's a lot of people who you know we we diagnose major things i've actually diagnosed peripheral vascular disease also on telehealth you know mm. but sometimes the disease is so obvious that you take right. the shoes and socks off and you examine the feet, it's immediately visible that there is a circulation problem, especially when they have discoloration or when they have open wounds, ulcers which are not healing, when there is granulation tissue, all that stuff. But when they don't have, or when there is swelling, those things are very visible on telehealth. When they don't have that, uh, it's difficult to detect peripheral vascular disease only on telehealth. Right. So I think what we need is a combination. Not every visit has to be an in-office visit. I think large number of visits, like I think 70 to 80% of the visits can still be done uh, on televisit, uh, which is convenient for patient and healthcare providers. But, you know, we still have a role for 20 to 30% unless the, until the science is perfected. We have all these amazing sensors and apps where we can check oxygen, blood pressure. Uh, we can check the tissue level, perfusion, all those things at home. And then it becomes accessible to everyone, which is another huge problem is accessibility. So, we need both, both those. Once those problems are solved, I think telehealth can truly replace majority of the routine visit. Now, thinking about that, how does the hospital change if a lot of those visits become telehealth with some in-person visits? What's the function then? How does that whole setup then work? For the hospitals? Um, yeah, I think like it would change on some level. It will be less traffic, I would imagine, Yeah. I hope so. I think I think the problem right now, most people end up in a hospital because their diseases are not detected early on. So I think the way the modern medicine is still functioning, and I know there is a lot of push on changing that, where we are trying to focus more on value-based services rather than fee-for-service, which means 
somebody is sick right now, despite everything, there's still medicine and every healthcare provider is still being rewarded when you are helping the sickest of the sickest. Uh, okay. The rewards are not happening when people are overall healthy and asymptomatic, but you prevent them from becoming really sick. So that whole model fundamentally has to change a little bit. Right now, the way things are, um, if you, you know, what happens most of the time, people are asymptomatic and they don't have any complaint. It's great, nothing to do. And nobody checks them, nobody does any testing, and then it becomes too late. And then at that point, you know, they need to come to the hospital. And then they're in the hospital, and then, you know, they spend, you know, sometimes weeks and months in the hospital. So there is a dichotomy. There is a, there is a little bit of a disconnect. Uh, you know, if you think of, uh, like, the iceberg, you know, we are still so hyper-focused on fixing and focusing on the tip of that iceberg and that large submerged area of subclinical, asymptomatic, um, they're not being given the same degree of attention. Do you think there's a a kickback for the value-based system versus what's been going on among practitioners? Or people are like, hey, I don't, I'm not sure I want to do this. No, I think, um, I don't know if, if, uh, if practitioners, have, you know, I think most practitioners practice based on what they learn, right? Based on yeah. uh, you know what on the on the uh, what we call the traditional medicine or what's the standard of care and the standard of care right now is if you're symptomatic help if you're asymptomatic leave you alone that's that's just the standard of care so that's what most pr- practitioner and providers focus on I think the emphasis should be on prevention and early detection and screening you know so it's changing you know it's certainly changing I think. Uh, Value-based care is really like is taking a uh, you know a place in a lot of healthcare systems. So you know the next uh, administration and the next uh, right. ten years in this country will truly determine which way we are going. But I don't see value-based care changing now. I think. Do you think there's a regional-based approach related to this uh, value-based system? Is it more of like, hey, New York City is more progressive than say the middle of the country? What's your thoughts on that? Certainly, there is a huge, uh, you know, disparity and, you know, your zip code determines more than your genetic code, right? So, you know, where mm, you live... I've been talking about that a lot. I'm a yeah. big proponent of that. Yeah, no, where you live plays a huge role, without a doubt. Um, you know, there are certain parts uh, in this country where, you know, and I think it comes down to everything, right? Access to healthcare, you know, what's the normal there? I mean, I have an office in... Um, in Irvington, New Jersey, I have an office in Passaic, New Jersey. You know, these are very urban areas and good luck trying to find healthy meal there. If you happen to live there and you want to get healthy meal, it's so difficult, not impossible, but it's so difficult to find uh, healthy options, right? Versus you live in um, West Village in Manhattan and you want to go and find like, you know, like a healthy meal. There are like Every corner has seven options. So, of course, where you live plays a big role, without a doubt. Um, so, yeah, I think certain states are definitely faring better. But, you know, states like New York, New Jersey, which are considered more progressive and, uh, you know, overall a better, I would say, I, I don't want to say better, but like, you know, certain part of the country, you may not have that many experts, especially the rural parts. But then we also have in in these busy states a lot of immigrants, you know, in New York and New Jersey, which uh, mm-hmm. which also continue to increase, and uh, in people from different cultures, people who have lived their lives and have poor access to healthcare and, and different cultural belief and 
uh, all their lives they've had uh, you know overall poor access to healthcare. So we also see a lot of disease um, in this part of the world. Um, so yeah, I think you know awareness is very important no matter where we are. In the I would say in the entire country, and, and we need to focus on increasing it. Yeah, I would imagine. I've definitely had many conversations about zip code health, and I think because of COVID too and things, we're seeing a migration of sorts. I may think if you're in New York, right? Is that where you're at? Uh, I live in New York, but I, I, my practice is in New Jersey, so I'm mainly in right. New Jersey, yeah. Have you seen that a lot of, well, I mean, I don't know, I'm just hearing about a lot of people are migrating from New York or getting out of the city, um, and people are more moving to rural areas. Have you noticed that as well, and how I does that affect? I think it was no, for, no. for a while. I don't honestly know how much of this, you know, because now we are seeing more New York is, I mean, knock on word, New York is a little bit more status quo in terms of COVID. And now we are seeing right. more in other part of the country. So um, I'm seeing a, definitely seeing a small trend, especially like people who are, you know, I think I think it has more to do with the, with the financial and economic situation. Yeah. And, you know, some of the major economic hubs and companies are not mandating for people to come to work in person. Um, so it gives people an option to live somewhere else and the rents, you know, in New York City and in Northern Jersey are still pretty high uh, due to which people are migrating. So I think it has a little bit more to do with that. Uh, maybe a very high COVID incidence back in like those early months was a kicker. But now I'm seeing more disease in like Florida and Texas and, and those other states. So I don't know if COVID is really the reason for this migration. So how have you handled all this with COVID in your practice? And, you know, you're talking about peripheral artery disease and everything. Since we last talked, obviously things have changed. What's been your thoughts about how things have progressed in your practice since then? Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, we are, we are keeping, you know, we are focused. We are really, uh, you know, we have an incredible team of individuals who work uh, in my practice, uh, Apex Heart and Vascular. We are very proud. We were never... Even in the middle of the crisis, we were open every single day, taking care of people. Uh, I myself physically went and saw people in the hospitals every day, including volunteering for COVID patients and really helped taking care of this peripheral vascular disease. As I said, you know, there were like at least two or three examples I can think of in, um, you know, middle of crisis, you know, people had completely shut down uh, their lower extremities and their huge blockages mm. and you know, we could go and help those people. So we're very proud the way, you know, we could act. And we're also very grateful and fortunate that, you know, we not only we could do that, most people in our practice remain healthy and could avoid COVID. Um, our patient population, you know, as I said, first few months, we were doing a lot of telehealth. Now we're back to seeing people in the office with option for telehealth. And, you know, we are doing that, mis you know, that, uh, that, that uh, mixing of uh, trying to see... Yeah. People, you know, so we are still providing really good and adequate care. Um, so I'm really proud of our team. Um, you know, we're just hoping that the second wave doesn't come and hit us. And, uh, you know, September is actually PAD Awareness Month. So, you know, this month, really, we are, we are talking a lot about peripheral vascular disease. We are educating our, our patients and we are educating the community of doctors and healthcare providers in general in our area and offering people free vascular screening this month. Um, so really that's, that's what we have been focusing on. 
That's wonderful. Dr. Shaw, I got to tell you, I always enjoy speaking with you. You just have a huge breadth of knowledge um, and you care. I think when, when your last appearance on here, a bunch of people said, I never heard a doctor talk about spirituality before. And uh, no, it's very which kind is of you. Good, but sad also at the same time. You know? <laughs> it's very kind of you. I think, you know, I think everything is connected, right? Spiritual health, emotional yes. health. I mean, um, you know, and and we saw this in COVID. We needed those mental muscles, you know. So yes. I hope uh, everyone focuses on that as well. Most definitely. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time. And I look forward to having this come out and for people to learn about this. I learned a ton today from you already. So thank you. Absolutely. My absolute pleasure. Thank you again so much for having me. And uh, if anyone has any questions, concerns, issues, I will be very happy to answer even one-on-one. So I'm sure you will put uh, our website and email address there. So You got it. Of course. Thank you for your time. I'll be in touch, Dr. Shah. Take care, Dan. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone. Do you know the risk factors for type 2 diabetes? Or what makes it more likely you or someone in your life might have the disease? With type 2 diabetes playing a growing role in the lives of so many, you need to know. And Project Power, a community program from the American Diabetes Association, is here to help. Take our risk test today at diabetes.org slash Project Power. You can avoid the risk of type 2. Project Power will help. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.